0: Hello and welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the sanctuary for independent media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community, I'm Blaze Bryant, flying solo. Today on Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a Seneca Lake Guardian's response to the signing of the crypto mining bill, then... We get an overview of the Open Spaces for All report that was released to address who is visiting and feels welcome in public parks. Later on, we remember Kalia Clark, a pillar of the American Civil Rights Movement, who passed away on November 4th with a recording from her visit to the sanctuary for independent media in 2013. After that, we go into our archives For an interview with Barbie Izquierdo, who, or I'm sorry, on food insecurity. Finally, retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson joins me to tell us all about the weather. But first, here are our headlines a man has been indicted in a July 2021 homicide. Albany County Attorney David Soares said Nicholas Anderson intentionally killed Rashad Nicholson. The alleged homicide happened on July 24th of last year. A trial date has not yet been set. A mobile home park owner has been asked to stop harassing tenants. Last June, the state attorney general's office sent a letter to Michael Giovanone, landlord of the Saratoga Lakeview mobile home park. Angela Kaufman has been leading the fight among tenants. Giovon told the tenants to leave within five years after buying the park next to his marina. The dispute is on the town of Saratoga's planning board agenda. Their next meeting is on Wednesday, November 30th. You can hear Angela Kaufman's conversations about these issues at our mediasanctuary.org site with our housing correspondent, Aileen Javier. Talks between the Roman Catholic Diocese of Albany and attorneys are going nowhere. Hundreds of plaintiffs have filed sexual abuse claims under the Child Victims Act. One of the mediators has tried to make progress, told the Times Union the negotiations have been a complete waste of time. Former Bishop Howard Hubbard asked the Vatican to remove him from the priesthood. Finally, the New York State Business Council is supporting the Clean Slate Bill. The legislation would seal the criminal record of people released from state prison. The council said the unemployment rate for folks released from state jails is more than 25 percent at a time when businesses are struggling to fill jobs. The Business Council also told state lawmakers, they need to, or there is an urgent need to improve childcare options and make it more affordable, which would allow more women to enter the, or re-enter the workforce post COVID. That's it for the headlines here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine, which is listener supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org. Send us an email, hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Or you can even give us a call at 518-272-2390. Our first story is about Governor Hochul, who has signed... The first in the nation crypto mining moratorium, Mark Dunley, who has covered a lot of local news on cryptocurrency, asked grassroots organizer Yvonne Taylor why this bill is so important.
1: We're joined by Yvonne Taylor, who is the uh, vice president of uh, Seneca Lake Guardians. And as many people have heard by now, uh, Governor Hochul, uh, finally, has signed the uh, bill to oppose a two-year moratorium on any new cryptocurrency um, mining operation using of, use of what's called proof of work here in, in New York. So, uh, Yvonne, is one of the you know people who really fought to, to get this moratorium uh, enacted. Why is this so important?
2: It's it's so important because we are in the middle of a climate crisis, and to imagine repowering or expanding decommissioned or underutilized fossil fuel burning power plants in New York state or anywhere else for that matter simply to provide power to to mine for cryptocurrency uh, felt literally insane
1: and i mean how you know big is the climate you know impact um and I guess this particular way of doing it, you know cryptocurrency, where you, you you basically have people sign a mathematical equation in order to create the the the, the crypto coin. How, what type of impact are we actually talking about?
2: Right. It's not all virtual currency that uses this proof of work model, uh, but the proof of work model, they call it also cryptocurrency mining. And the mining isn't what most people think of when you you take uh, you know excavation equipment and dig into the ground. The mining is done by machines that are highly specialized for this uh, for this work. Uh, the problem with it is that it requires an extraordinary amount of energy, uh, comparable to some countries like the size of Argentina, and so that's why some of these miners have decided that the best way to do it is to buy up a power plant to fuel uh, the energy that they need. Uh, But because it's so energy consumptive, uh, it's an industry that is is really bad for the climate. And there are other forms of cryptocurrency uh, that use models like, for example, proof of stake that use 99% less energy than the proof of work, mining does.
1: Now this moratorium applies to you know new permit proposals. It uh, does not apply either to existing plants or to actually to plants already applied for permits. And one of the you know motivations from people out in Seneca Lake was this uh, proposal related to uh, uh, Greenwich. Where where does that one stand at this point?
2: Right. So the uh, the Greenwich power plant was a coal-fired power plant that was shut down and producing zero carbon emissions for several years and restarted again, uh, not to provide power to the public, but to mine for cryptocurrency, which is how Seneca Lake Guardian got involved. Uh, the, The Greenwich facility was positioned ideally as a test case for how other decommissioned or underutilized power plants across New York state may uh, become uh, revitalized again. And so we uh, brought it from being a test case to being the poster child for what not to do with power plants in New York State. And um, sadly, this moratorium that that the governor just signed into law has no impact on the Greenwich facility because it is grandfathered in, Uh, however, Uh, The Department of Environmental Conservation did deny its Title V air permit renewal, uh, which is a good sign for our bold climate law in New York. And we are working now to shut it down completely, uh, along with the Fortistar plant in North Tonawanda, which is trying to follow the Greenwich model.
1: Now, this bill, I believe, was actually passed, you know, in late spring. So it took five, six months uh, before the Governor uh, agreed to sign it, and actually you know, took place a couple of weeks after uh, she got reelected, is there anything to read into you know why it was delayed uh, this long and, and this is a study bill. Do we know where the Hochul administration really is now you know standing on the issue of this type of cryptocurrency mining and, and its climate impact?
2: Right, well, what what you saw happen, Mark, was a, a major Herculean victory brought about by collaborating with grassroots environmental activists and organizations across New York state. Uh, and with the help of groups like the Sierra Club, Food and Water Watch, Earth Justice, NYPIRG and Seneca Lake Guardian, uh, We were able to get this bill passed at the eleventh hour, uh, and then ultimately signed by Governor Hochul, despite millions of dollars of investment by the pro-crypto industry, and you know, for not only campaign donations but also major lobbying efforts by the industry. Despite all of that attempt by the industry to squash our efforts. Uh, you know the bill was passed, and Governor Hochul finally did sign it into law. Uh, I think that bodes well for her, you know, ultimate support of New York's bold climate law, and we hope that she will continue to demonstrate to be a leader on climate uh, for the rest of the country.
1: Now, many of these type of crypto mining, you know, computer farms, I guess, actually had been, you know, based in China, but China eventually decided. That both the cryptocurrency itself was sort of a too speculative of a financial institution, but they were also concerned about the climate impact. So they began, you know, to push them out and they migrated to the United States, but particularly also to upstate uh, in New York. Where where is this issue standing right now, say with the, the Biden administration? I kind of recollect they, they did they did put out some type of statement a while back, which uh, seemed to acknowledge some real concerns about this issue.
2: That's right. Uh, New York is sadly not the only uh, state impacted by cryptocurrency mining. As you mentioned, once China began to ban the practice, these miners moved by the droves to the United States, where it's spreading like a cancer across the country. And you're right, uh, the Biden administration's Office of Technology and Science put out a very comprehensive statement. Uh, suggesting that the energy intensive nature of this industry was incompatible with our country's climate goals. In addition to that, Earth Justice also put out an amazing comprehensive guide, along with the Sierra Club, for other communities and other states across the country who might be uh, experiencing the harmful impacts of this industry. It's a, it's a wonderful resource uh, that not only demonstrates the the harmful impacts of this industry, but also refutes some of the major industry talking points. And it it should be useful uh, for anyone considering some kind of federal legislation against this industry.
1: Now we only have about a little over a minute left. So I'm gonna throw out a question and you take it where you want. Um, one is one of the things the industry argues well we can power these plants uh, these facilities with with renewable energy so you know we don't have to have this type of negative climate impact um and then also if people want to get more information about this issue or keep involved how best can they do that
2: thank you yes uh you know that was an appealing idea in in the beginning considering, wow, well, let's just power all of these mines with renewable energy resources. However, if you look at how much energy they consume, uh, what it only does is it takes all of those precious green electrons away from the public where we really need it most in order to achieve climate goals. And it it raises the cost and the accessibility of renewable energy resources for everyday people and businesses. So that notion, while it seems on the surface to be a good one, is not at all an ideal uh, situation. We need to move into less energy intensive uh, modes of cryptocurrency. If, yep, if you want more information, please follow Seneca Lake Guardian on Twitter, Facebook, And go to SenecaLakeGuardian.org.
1: Thank you very much, Yvonne Taylor. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
0: Thank you very much, Mark. To learn more, to understand more about cryptocurrency and crypto mining, there are stories on our website, Mediasanctuary.org. Open spaces for all is a report to address the lack of diversity in open spaces and public parks. His plan lays out a vision for addressing accessibility, representation, and structural issues that keep demographics such as black, brown, and LGBTQ plus folks from visiting these spaces. Kathy Moser, Chief Conservation Officer at Open Spaces or at the Open Spaces Institute, spoke with Sina bazila about these findings.
3: The Open Space Institute, in partnership with New York Outdoor Recreation Coalition, unveiled a new statewide plan to make millions of acres of parks and open space more welcoming and accessible for New Yorkers and visitors. Joining me now is Kathy Moser, Chief Conservation Officer at Open Space Institute. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thanks, Sina. Glad to be here. So let's start with what is the Open Space for All plan? So the Open Space Institute back
4: in April of 2020 started to do a look ahead about the next 10 years of trends in in New York State Parks. And, you know, the pandemic was with us. The George Floyd murder happened. And we thought to ourselves, we don't know what's going to happen in 10 years, society's changing and we decided to look at why different sectors of society weren't going to open spaces. The National Park Service has done a survey and says that 75% of visitors to national parks are white and that doesn't reflect our population. So the Open Space Institute or we call ourselves OSI decided to partner with the New York Outdoor Recreation Coalition and do first a, a survey of people. We've got about 220 organizations to participate and tell us why they didn't go to open spaces, what we could offer to make them feel more comfortable going there. And so this report, Open Spaces for All, is a product of reaching out um, to different underserved communities and finding out what they wanted to see in their parks and open spaces.
3: The plan notes that there are structural and societal barriers that prevent New Yorkers from accessing the public parks, open spaces, and other outdoor amenities. Could you talk more about what these barriers are?
4: Right. We found a simple one to identify as transportation. You know, if you live in New York City and you want to get to Harriman or Bear Mountain State Parks, you know, it's difficult sometimes to do that. Or you get there and you don't see anybody that looks like you. So you don't feel as welcome. Or you get to a state park and you don't know, do I need special hiking shoes to go for a hike? If I want a kayak, you know, how do I get that equipment? You know, how do you, how do you try new activities? So we found transportation a barrier, the representation of some of the employees and people that you see at parks and open spaces is a barrier, and then just not really understanding what to do or what was available once you got there.
3: When you talk about transportation, when it comes to the income brackets, how far do lower income people generally have to travel as opposed to higher income people to find these open spaces?
4: Yeah, that's a good question, Sina. We did not look at that kind of economic disparity. We were looking more at, you know, communities of color, the LGBTQ plus Um, community, less so on people with physical um, issues, just because the Americans with Disability Act dictates what happens. So it was really more, not so much economic, but communities of color and the LGBTQ was a focus of the report.
3: And why did you choose those groups to focus this report on? Well, part of it was
4: you know, during COVID, when everything was shut down and people were flocking to open spaces, you know, there weren't any movies, there weren't concerts, restaurants were closed. We just, we were just noticing that it was mostly a white visitation to parks and open spaces. And so it kind of made us open our eyes up and say, why is this happening?
3: And you mentioned that the ADA does more work on accessibility, but is that something that you would plan to do some research on in the future?
4: Yeah, we have, you know, we can look at that because um, the Americans with Disability Act says you have to prove that you can't put the infrastructure in. And so you can build kayak launches that are accessible. You can build trails that are more accessible. Um, And frankly, a lot of that accessibility uh, meshes well with, how people are reacting to covid you know the the social distancing um, more people going outside so a lot of the trails that you see that were very popular were the wider trails that you know are better for people with physical um, disabilities you know they're more accessible by um, wheelchairs and by people that you know have to use um, some type of support to for their mobility
3: the plan does mention Indigenous people. What are some of these findings? Well,
4: I think we worked a lot with the Department of Environmental Conservation and the Office of Parks, Recreation and Historic Preservation here in New York. And I, I think both agencies are doing a good job on a lot of these issues. But we identified, and in the Open Spaces for All plan, you'll see that the recommendations for the indigenous communities are separate because we felt as though, you know, it was just a very different situation for them. We recommended that the state agencies increase their communications with the indigenous communities throughout New York state and offer them more opportunities to practice their cultural activities. And, and parks and DEC do do that, but they don't really talk about it that much. So we encourage the state agencies to have an, a dialogue with the indigenous communities and also um, really promote some of their uses of the land, in, including taking indigenous knowledge into account when you start to manage for some of the properties as well that the state owns.
3: So now all this data has been collected. How does it get implemented?
4: Right. So one of the things that we heard from both um, state parks and environmental conservation is um, they liked the report, but they didn't want the Open Space Institute nor the New York Outdoor Red Coalition to just walk away, you know, put the plan here, you guys do this. And so we agreed you know, to meet with the two city agencies on a, a frequent basis. I'd like to see us getting together on a quarterly basis. And what's been really great to see is some of the recommendations have already been implemented. Um, for example, State Parks is hiring um, what they're calling ladders to the outdoors um, coordinators. And one of their coordinators um, named Kiwan out in Buffalo, and this is a shout out to him, in 18 months, he has gotten 12,000 students from Buffalo, inner city kids, out to state parks. So parks and DEC are already implementing some of these recommendations. And the Open Space Institute, as well as the New York Outdoor Rec Coalition, are committed to continuing to work both with the state agencies and hold ourselves in accountable. We, the land trust community, should be looking at these recommendations and trying to figure out which of these recommendations we can implement as well.
3: So how is the access to open spaces important in the fight for equity and specifically in relationship to a person's mental and physical health? Yeah,
4: I think we saw, you know, we're not out of COVID, but in the early days of COVID that, you know, people's mental health really depended on them getting outside and experiencing nature. And, you know, people talk about forced bathing, how you can go in nature and just You know, feel calmer. And we want everyone to have those experiences. As I say to some of my colleagues, I've spent over 35 years of my career conserving land. And shame on me for not noticing that the land that was being conserved wasn't appreciated, wasn't being used by all sectors of society. And I think it's time for all of us in the land trust community and environmental community to do what we can to bring new communities, new users, new visitors out to some of these places.
3: You mentioned earlier that Black, Brown, LGBTQIA plus communities may come to these spaces and not feel welcome because they don't maybe see their own identity reflected. What are some ways that that is being addressed? Well, I
4: think that the state agencies are trying to hire more diverse candidates um i think that we all the state agencies and not for profits can bring bring programming into disadvantaged communities you know so talking to people about you know what what it means to kayak or you know hike into the mountains what do you need you know the whole leave no trace behind some of those concepts and i love this open spaces for all plan because there are concrete examples of things that are working I do think there's a lot of examples in this plan that state agencies, and and I keep saying state agencies, but it could be a county, it could be a city or municipality. These recommendations, I think there's enough in here that, you know, everyone will find something that they can do for, you know, for their organization.
3: Thank you so much, Kathy Moser, for joining us. Great. Thanks, Sina.
0: Thank you very much, Sina Bazila-Hickey. We will continue the conversation about open spaces and their inclusion because while they do very much include the LGBTQ plus community and black and indigenous people of color, the disability piece was missing and we look forward to more conversations. You can read the full report at openspaceinstitute.org. I'm Blaze Bryant. You are listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy. WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady. WOALP 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. Our third story, Colia Clark, a pillar of the American Civil Rights Movement, passed away on November 4th. She spoke at the Sanctuary for Independent Media in March of 2013.
5: The Underground Railroad was a serious movement, running out of New Orleans, Louisiana, the biggest piece of it. Though we hear about Harriet Tubman and i loved love to hear about my sister, she moves me. And this sister says she was a Harriet, I thought, hmm, a Harriet's in the house. <laughs> I'm Harriet Tubman chilling, black woman slave. Born on a plantation in Maryland, gal. How oh, am my rights depraved? Tell me how far the road to Canada? How far do I have to go? How far the road to Maryland? And the hatred that I know. Harriet lived here. Right here in Troy. <laughs> You're on such hallowed ground. It's very difficult to talk about a movement from New Orleans, Louisiana, a movement uh, from the east coast of the USA of Africans and their compatriots. Oftentimes whites who are also poor whites are whites who have gotten in other kinds of trouble getting through the woods and the mountains and the streams through the some of the caves that they have explored. They had a, the, union, the United States government commissioned a general, a black general, to study Harriet's trails. And he said, she couldn't have done it. And I, say, uh, I said, General Parks, tell me, why couldn't you have done it? He said, because those caves were too dangerous. I <laughs> said, so they didn't know Harriet. <laughs> and you sure don't know Harriet. Uh, so this underground railroad that came up the Mississippi River through the center bed of the country, into that region that John, John Brown would go into when he went into Kansas, right up through Illinois, all the way upstream, when spread out through the Great Lakes, a probably long part of the trail we call these days the Erie Canal, that underground railroad that went through Cincinnati, with Cincinnati being the strongest piece of it, that underground railroad may be running today. And I want you to be clear, because it's what? It's an unseen trail with unknown conductors and many, many train stops so that Africans in enslavement would talk about, would sing about, this train is a freedom train, this train is a freedom train, You can only write it in the freedom name to write this train. I've been got church started up here, y'all, so be careful now. Uh, So we here at Troy, where Garrett Smith had commissioned Henry Highland Garnett to pass out thousands of acres of land in what we know is the area right here beyond North Elba, New York thousands of acres, to Africans from New York City to come up and farm, to come up and farm this land. He hired John Brown to train these Africans from New York City in how to farm. Now can you imagine that in the 1840s and 50s? Slavery is over. Graduated slavery ended in 1827 Henry Highland's gunnets from B- Baltimore, Maryland where they took in 90% of the population of slaves were below the age of 16 His grandfather an African chief of the Mandingo tribe caught the confidence of Colonel Spencer his master who called him Joseph because he was so smart and so much like Joseph in the Bible introduced him to Christianity <laughs> but didn't understand that Joseph was an African. And not just an African chieftain, but an African in his heart. And he came from a place where indigenous people, all people in Africans were indigenous people at this hour, believed that I am because we are. Because we are, I am. That is the first step toward being a human. And Colin Spencer, if you be no slave, you be no friend of mine. massa or not, he didn't understand that because he didn't understand that he was not a part of the humanness, the wholeness that makes us one people. He took his whole family north. I'm talking about eight family units. Unheard of in a runaway case. So this tells you that these people are being what? led by some skillful organizers, and they wind up around Mott Street in Manhattan. Years later, they will be raided by Maryland raiders. Garnett's father will have to jump from a building. Garnett was at sea, and when he returned, he returned and said, at that moment, we're gonna have to fight, and I will never be without a weapon. So this is the man that came to Troy to pastor a church. This is the man that from 1840 to 1848 pastored the Presbyterian here of Troy. He gathered around him all of the other men and women, and there were plenty of sisters. Not just Harriet who was here. Harriet was here in 1861 to free a brother. And I know you know about him because on one of the bank buildings here is the man that Harriet actually freed. Of course, there was a mob of 4,000, 2,000 on each side. You're standing on Hallett Ground. This is Troy, New York. You're standing in an hour when you're going to have to do what happened right here in Troy after the Civil War ended, and industrialization was mounting, and this was a massive industrial center. But it also was the one of the most polluted areas of the country. People were dying of all kinds of lung diseases, especially TB. And the black brother, architect, built right up here on a hill somewhere in Troy, a wonderful park, so that women and children could come up to the park and get fresh air, fresh air. This is Troy. Did y'all know that? This is Troy. When I'm in Troy, I know that I'm standing on sacred ground of revolutionaries who were looking at the environment, who looked at farming and new farm techniques. When I'm in Troy, nothing you can do will surprise me. (laughs) Nothing. Because all of the revolutionaries that have come through here, have come through here with the intent of building something that didn't look like capitalism. Henry Highland Garnett, Garrett Smith, who himself was a financier, talked about ending forever what we know as capitalism, slavery, and developing what they call the wage system. But Garnett said, that doesn't look like it's enough. We must also end the monopoly of land. We're talking about pre-Civil War. Pre-Civil War. So, echo socialism begun where? I'm, you, know, you didn't say it like you meant it. So, I've given you a spark of a speech. But Coley Clark, as any my students will tell you, doesn't do anything without doing what this wonderful... Young man did on his home this e- horn this evening. And that is having some music because Africans don't function without music. I come out of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. We open with music and we close what we shall overcome. Right. We're the music people. So I ask you to join me and just saying a little brief piece with me. Would everybody please stand? And sister, may I have your hand? Y'all will just catch hands somehow. And the South would pass right over left. She's got a baby, so I'm not going to trouble (laughs) her. But I want you to say with me, I am. I am. am.
6: Because we are. Because Because we are. Because we are. Because Because we
5: are. are. I am. I am. am. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, turn me around, turn me me around.
0: It's a beautiful clip of Kalia Clark speaking at the Sanctuary for Independent Media in March of 2013. A bit more about Kalia as we play or as we pay tribute. She worked with the NAACP alongside Medgar Evers in Mississippi. Then, as a member of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating or Nonviolence Coordinating uh, Committee. She played key roles in the efforts to establish equal voting rights in Selma, Alabama, and the Birmingham campaign. Later on, she worked with Cynthia McKinney in her presidential campaign and ran for the Senate from New York twice on the Green Party ballot line. She was more recently a vocal supporter of the Black Lives Matter movement and chair of the Grandmothers for the release of of Mumia Abu Jamal she was also a professor at the SUNY at the State University of New York at Albany Kolia Clark died November 4th she was 82 years old to our next story as we come off a holiday weekend where many people were blessed with an abundance of food we reached into our ar- into our archives. For this next story about food insecurity with Barbie Izquierdo.
6: Good day all. This is Michelle Messergen for the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. And my guest today is Barbie Izquierdo. Hopefully I didn't massacre your name. Community Empowerment Manager at Hunger Free America, welcome, Barbie.
7: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good afternoon.
6: So, can you d- tell our listeners what is the organization, Hunger Free America? What what's its mission?
7: Sure. Um, so, Hunger Free America is a national nonprofit organization that engages in both advocacy and direct services. Um, we serve low-income people by lifting up the policy solutions we develop. In, col- in collaboration <laughs> with our communities and bringing them into the room where decisions are made, we believe that the emergency food food systems fills a gap. But the answer to long-term um, hunger is an expansion and increased participation of the fed- of the federal safety net. Um, Nutrition programs like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, which is also known as SNAP um, and was formerly known as Food Stamps, are designed to address hunger and to expand with the size of the need so that every eligible person who applies will get it. Um, Not only do these benefit Do these benefits provide 10 meals for every one that a food pantry can serve. It also has reimbursement mechanisms that can generate funds for the city and state government as well. As it preserves jobs at grocery stores and supermarkets. There's a lot of benefits to programs like this, but there's also a lot of stigma and a lot of barriers to people applying Um, My role is to engage people of low-income communities and the community itself throughout the country and to help them learn about the services that are available to them. Um, My goal is to help make their voices heard and push government to do more to help them, not less. And, And anyone can do this work if they know how, and we just hope that our work won't be necessary someday because we'll have totally have solved hunger.
6: Wow, that's amazing. That's amazing. So what communities and what areas are you serving in your role?
7: So I um, serve on a national scale. So I am currently um, working on our Food Action Board. And what that basically is, um, is what I'm doing for the Food Action Board is I'm looking for people with lived experience just as myself who are willing to um, testify at Congress, get into these rooms with senators, legislators, um, and explain why these programs are, aren't working, if they are, what is, um, what needs to be fixed, how it's affecting the community. Um, so because I personally have been a part of an organized group like that, um, I'm now blessed enough to say that I'm on the other side and, and helping to find people um, to do the same things that, that I've been doing
6: what does it mean for someone to be food insecure you know can you share some stories and if you want to share your story
7: absolutely um being food insecure in all honesty um where i would have to start personally is how it's affected me i have dealt with a lot of shame a lot of embarrassment um because i was featured in a documentary called a place at the table which talks about hunger in America. Um, In that documentary, you can see me struggling to feed my kids. Um, You can see that like, they have a shot of my kids eating Chef Boyardee and I'm in another room eating a sandwich, no mayonnaise, no just, you know, bread cheese and and salami. Um, And I was separated from them because I didn't want them to see that I wasn't having the same meal that they had. And um, in the beginning of the documentary, I talk about how like I would never feed my kids Chef Boyardee because I had to eat that every day growing up. And then, of course, throughout the documentary, they show you that eventually I I do have to resort to that. What it does to you psychologically are things that um, can affect you for the rest of your life. And I still struggle to talk about these things without getting emotional, so I apologize if it happens. I've been through situations where I've had to yell at my kids and and force them to go to sleep because they said they were hungry and I just didn't have anything to give them. Um, I've been in situations where I've had to um, go to food food banks, food pantries, soup kitchens and at times they were at capacity. Um, I've been on the other side volunteering and working for food organizations and having to tell people we don't have any more. Um, I've wor- I worked for the Coalition Against Hunger for a few years um, here in Philadelphia. I went from you know knowing what it's like to go through these programs and how hard the application processes are and and how they're delayed and how social workers are overworked and then you know here I am having the ability to fill out these applications for people over the phone, um, getting their paperwork for them, submitting them all together in their application but in the same sense, having to tell them, well, you qualify for $16. And it, it hurts to know, like it, it was a double-edged sword because it's like, you know, I know that these programs aren't perfect, but we're helping someone, right, in some way. So you have to feel good and be happy. But again, telling a senior who has to pay for their own medication and has co-pays for their, for their doctor visits that you're eligible for $16 a month in food stamps really doesn't help them. So it's it it was hard. Um, I still struggle at times with feeling like I might be an unfit mother because I've exposed my struggles to to the public. You know, this this stuff is Googleable. It's gonna be out for the rest of their lives. Like, I've wondered how it's gonna affect my children. I've also um, struggled with feeling less than and like I I have to prove myself harder than other people um burnout happens a lot more um the shame takes over at times of having to admit that this is what i've been through this is this is my life and to still focus on trying to make people see that there are millions of people out there like me who are struggling um but it's a little harder when you use yourself in order to make changes right so what i hope to do um in the 13 years that i've been doing this is to make that process a little easier um because i didn't have any guidance when i started telling my story um so if i can help find people and and help them throughout the process with finding mental health resources finding out if there's any other programs that might help them that affect their social determinants of health. You know, it might not just be food insecurity. There's there's poverty, there's housing issues, there's domestic violence, there's there's violence, there's drugs, there's a lot of things that go on in these neighborhoods that sometimes when you're from these neighborhoods, you just feel like they don't care. Yeah. It's not going to matter.
6: I appreciate you sharing your story and you know, it's impact on you and just the struggle for individuals to go through an application process is, yes. is a barrier. And here all people want is is food. Mm-hmm. Um, how important then would you say
7: are food pantries? I think that food pantries are very necessary. Um, the problem is, is that sometimes when people look at food solutions, they look at, okay, it's either this or that. And what we need to realize is that it's a combination of things. If we're really going to solve this issue and not just, you know resolve a problem if we want a true solution um then it takes a lot of things working together you know um the snap program is is a supplement it's supposed to help you and not give you everything that you need so there are a lot of working families Mm -hmm. who are on snap but still don't have enough um from my personal experience when i would go through that that's where i would go i would go to the food pantries um at the time in my neighborhood, there were certain limitations, like you can only go once every 30 days and, and, and things like that. But, um, it, it, when you're in those situations, there's not just one solution. Um, okay. there might be. Yeah.
6: Okay. Um, so I'm going to have to kind of move this along because we're getting near the end of our time. Um, sure. is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched upon? And, and is there any, suggestions that you would like to if you were talking to a politician what would you say?
7: I think that politicians should definitely bring more people with lived experience to the room. I think that um, when considering what um, programs should have their funding cut um, or their budgets um, edited that they should definitely have in consideration the people that they're affecting. Um, If there's anything that I would, any message that I would want people to hear is that, um, you know, you're not alone in experiencing this. And um, if there's any way that, you know, I myself or Hunger Free America can help connect people to resources, um, then we most definitely will do so.
6: Well, I hate to end the program. And um, I thank you so much for being with me today, Barbie.
7: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
6: And this is Michelle Nesertian for the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network.
0: Thank you very much, Michelle. That conversation was recorded in 2020. Barbie Izquierdo is an internationally recognized expert on food insecurity and poverty, winning the 2022 Global Citizen Prize Award. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> we have a lot to aspire to To even think about getting that prize. All right, final segment here is with our retired meteorologist or national or retired National Weather Service meteorologist. That is the one and only Hugh Johnson for our weekly weather chat. Hey there, Hugh. It's good to have you with me here. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving.
8: I did, Blaze. I, I had a great Thanksgiving, and I, today I survived oral gum laser surgery. So... All good. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Whoa. (laughs)
0: I'm
8: glad you survived (laughs) that. That
0: sounds like something else.
8: It's not God for lasers. It's it's not the old-fashioned way they did it. It would have been a lot worse.
0: (laughs) Well, surgery aside, how was it? Good. Good. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Good to hear. Well, we had relatively speaking a pretty uneventful weather day for Thanksgiving. How would you rank Turkey Day weather-wise in terms of some of the others that we've seen?
8: Uh definitely uneventful. Um it was actually pretty nice. It was uh we got up into the uh got just below, I think just below fifty. So we were pretty close to normal. Compare that to three years ago in 2018 where we stayed in the teens all day and had a low in the single numbers with wind on top of that. That was our coldest Thanksgiving on record. Our warmest, I think it's 2004 when we hit 65 and then had a thunderstorm. And in 1971, we had 22 inches of snow on Thanksgiving. So all things considering, it was a very uneventful but very benign Thanksgiving day weather-wise. Lots of sunshine, which helped, I think, the cause.
0: (laughs) Yeah, good good day for the Charlie Brown football game, wasn't it? Indeed. <laughs> you know, I got to work my Charlie Brown Thanksgiving references in here uh, when I can. Oh, my goodness, Hugh, those poor folks around the Buffalo area, they got buried, yeah. didn't they?
8: They did indeed. The airport, the airport got close to three feet, and that was, of course, not the epicenter of that lake event. Orchard Park, where I guess the Bills play, got close yes. to eighty inches of snow. Eighty inches of snow, if you can it. that's more than we normally get in the entire season. That's eighty inches is one, our top fifteen percent, you know, highest uh, end of snowfall for a season. So imagine that from a three days. Uh, it was a, it was a blitz of three days of the, of the uh, lake effect uh, clobbering them. So quite epic indeed. And unfortunately, the storm did cause some problems. There were structural collapses. There were a couple of deaths, from, maybe from heart attack. There were people stranded. Uh, the thruway was closed for, for quite a time. I mean, they just couldn't plow that kind of snow. So very, very disruptive indeed.
0: Yeah, I mean, just to put this in perspective for folks, 80 inches of snow is six foot Eight. Yeah, I mean
8: taller, way taller than I am
0: <laughs> <laughs> at least a foot on me wow yeah. And close to that there me. <laughs> were, yeah I mean there were stories Hugh because the Buffalo Bills they actually ended up playing in Detroit on Sunday uh, you know on, on that Sunday before Thanksgiving against the, the Cleveland Browns they were supposed to play in Buffalo but you know the 80 inches mm-hmm. of snow that came when they got back the Bills punter, Sam Martin, his truck was literally buried, and he had a video on his social media showing how buried the truck was and how it took him near an hour to find
8: it. I know, <laughs> pretty amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's but, it's uh, just it's it's just incredible, and I can't yeah. help but wonder, Hugh, how do these things happen?
8: Well. Lake effect is a real, it's a very interesting thing, uh, Blaze. Uh, basically, what happens with lake effect is it's basically what happens in the nor'easter, but a much more intense and concentrated area. You get cold wind blowing on relatively warm water. The water in the 50s it may not seem warm, but it has plenty of moisture that can be tapped. And this cold air creates extreme instability, so the air is lifted. And then if there's something like a a disturbance along the way to augment things and then terrain, you throw that against uh, upslope terrain, you can really crank out an incredible amount of snow with that scenario with the wind coming over the lake, a southwest wind over Lake Erie in this case, uh, an upper level disturbance that helps to generally get the whole ball rolling and then the intense convection. And you can get two snowfall rates of two, three, four, five, six inches an hour easily. And that can last for hours because the band sets up and just lines up and just clobbers. It doesn't, there's nothing to stop it for, you know, as long as you have the right atmosphere conditions, you can keep getting, that band can, can perpetuate itself. And that's exactly what it did for three days. It did waffle. It did move a little bit vastly, a little bit, thank goodness. But even that, it's still just you know, amazing snow. We don't get that kind of snow lake effect right here in the capital region. We get some, we get Couple of inches, we get the stuff that by the time it gets here, the, the moisture has dissipated a little bit. But we do get some, and we get lake enhanced, which is a combination of of lake effect and other uh, 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 synoptic things to drive uh, helps to produce snow. But you can get, you know, certainly some snow here from lake uh, lake effect. Nothing like Buffalo, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, when you were working at the National Weather Service, I mean, what kind of advice do you give to people who are bracing for that much snow
8: well <laughs> if you're bracing that much much snow you're kind of a crazy but you know you just basically have to really you I, I thought I mean, yeah, if you're interested if you want that kind of snow you're crazy but if you're getting right, ready right, for right. it you just have to have a good snow blower take your time uh no realize it's going to take a long time to get dug out when you get feet of snow like that it just and blowers actually don't even work that well for that i, I think once you get over two feet you need front end loaders and and snow plows and things like that. It's very hard. You just it's just just have to be and brace yourself. If you think it's coming, get food ready, that kind of thing. It, it's it's fortunately these kind of lake epic lake events are rare. The last time they had one like in the, this in uh, Buffalo was in 2014, so that's almost a decade ago. So it's pretty rare to get this kind of ring of, of events. Because the lakes are a little warmer than average, we could say, okay, maybe climate change has something to do with it. Again, you can't pin it on one event, but you can t- take the fact that with the warmer temperature of the water, you get more moisture available, more potential snowfall, because you still get air masses that can be seasonally cold or cold a little colder than normal, and they do come along. So it adds more fuel to the, to the uh, snow. That's, that's, there's no question about it. Sure, Hugh
0: Johnson with me, Blaze Bryant here on Hudson Mohawk (laughs) Magazine. That was quite a weather event, and I do not like using that terminology. But yesterday, or I should say Sunday, really felt like it with the rain, the cool rain, and you had thunder and lightning and all that stuff. Yeah, that
8: that was a more synoptic typical even though it was cool there was still instability a lot and enough to generate uh, heavy bands of rain and even some thunder and lightning i didn't i didn't personally hear it but that doesn't mean it didn't happen i was inside i was kind of getting i was kind of preparing for my uh, thing today my um, gum thing so i was taking it easy but uh yeah there was definitely some heavy rain i got almost an inch of rain and uh pretty strong storm but by the way, I just want to let you know, Buffalo Airport, is. I think they lost most of their snow, if not all of it, because it did warm up enough afterwards, and they got the rain, too. So most of their snow is gone. Maybe not at Orchard Park, but at the airport, I think it's gone.
0: Well, Mother Nature giveth and it taketh, right? Take it, all right, give us it. a 45-second weather forecast here.
8: All right, we're looking at a very potent straight uh, jet stream, very fast moving southwest to northeast, and that's going to uh, allow for a couple of storms to go through. We're going to have a nice, tranquil day tomorrow. Windy, warmer on Wednesday with rain. We could have some pretty strong wind gusts, enough to cause some power outages. Stays windy Thursday, cooler behind the storm. And then there might be another uh, system coming in on the weekend, although it looks like it's going to be warm enough for rain. But it's going to stay kind of windy because of the strong jet stream. So and looking further down the road, there are potential uh, potential signal changes that could bring colder weather Starting later next week. But until then, temperatures at or above normal. All
0: right, Hugh, we have to leave it there. Hugh Johnson, retired National Weather Service meteorologist. Thank you very much. Be well. Um, We will catch up with you next week. And that just about does it here for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Blaze Bryant, our producer engineer, the incredible Cena Bazila Hickey volunteers. Mark Dunley and myself worked on the headlines, as well as Cena Bazila Hickey and uh, Michelle moses and others who made this show possible our content is produced by volunteers to learn more about how you can get involved mediasanctuary.org where you also can find our stories and stream sanctuary radio we are also available on most podcast platforms here on hudson mohawk magazine for cena bazila hickey I'm Blaze Bryant. Thank you very much for listening. We appreciate you.